Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice, calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Follow to Lead, a twice-a-month journey into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Kyle Petrantonio, your co-host. And I'm Father Randy Sly. And today we will be talking with the Most Reverend Thomas Bailey, the Bishop of the Diocese of Spokane, and Bishop Daly was ordained a priest in 1987. And in addition to parish ministry, he also served for several years as a teacher and later as president of Marin Catholic High School. He was ordained to the Episcopacy in 2011 as Auxiliary Bishop for the Diocese of San Jose and installed as Bishop for the Diocese of Spokane in 2015. For the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, he currently is serving as the chairman for the Committee on Catholic Education, and he also serves on the Committee of Evangelization and Catechesis, the Subcommittee on Catholic Home Missions of the Committee for National Collections, the Subcommittee for Native American Affairs of the Committee on Cultural Diversity in the Church, and as a consultant on the Committee on Religious Liberty. Well, Bishop Daly, obviously you're a very busy bishop, and so we are very thankful for you giving us this time today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, it's a great joy. I mean, I actually spent uh, almost 20 years of my priesthood in, at, at Marin Catholic. Uh, most of us as teacher the last eight years as, um, as uh, the president, uh, and, um, and it was there uh, when... Uh, we invited Archbishop Niederauer at the time, and I invited the Ann Arbor Dominicans who accepted, and then I was named auxiliary and, and sent, in fact, one of the first members of the community, Sister Miriam, I believe, went on to be on the faculty of the high school you are, are at. One That's time. correct, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we love having our Dominican sisters. Mm -hmm. Great blessing, yeah. Bishop, we're so glad you could be with us uh, today. Uh, the Follow to Lead podcast is especially geared toward Catholic uh, educational leaders and faculty and staff in our schools. And we're excited to learn that uh, this past fall you were elected as chair of the USCCB's Committee on Catholic Education. Um, before we get into that and your role, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own upbringing and uh, your experience in, in Catholic education uh, as a student and a practitioner. Sure. As I said uh, earlier, before we, we began the show, I grew up in San Francisco. So I often talk about there's two San Francisco's. There was Catholic San Francisco, and then there became crazy 
San Francisco. Um, but uh, I attended Our Lady of the Visitation School. I'm one of seven. My mom's identical twin had six kids and they lived two blocks away. So we were at one time all serving mass, the boys at a visitation, attending uh, Our Lady of the Visitation School. And then my family moved when I began high school to St. Brendan's where my younger three siblings uh, attended. I went to Sacred Heart, which is the De La Salle Christian Brothers School, and then to USF and then St. Patrick's Seminary. But looking back, my parents are both uh, graduates of Catholic schools in, in San Francisco. And um, it's every day when I pray for the both, both deceased, the sacrifices they met, made. My dad was an executive, but he had a good job. But, you know, seven kids in tuition, um, even in the uh, 60s and 70s and 80s, because uh, there's a great spread between my oldest sister and my youngest sister. But it's an education that truly informed me. And one of the things I brought to those years of teaching Marin Catholic was, which was a diocesan priest school. Um, Dominican sisters, as I mentioned, are there now. They had had the holy names. But um, I brought the approach to education that I learned, especially both the Daughters of Charity and the Christian Mothers. That's, it's that French school of spirituality, places great emphasis on humility. Everything is a gift. They are privileged to play, play a part in it. But unlike certain other religious orders who take credit for any success you ever had, they taught us that, um, uh, I, I would say a humility, uh, a recognition uh, of God's gift. And that whole notion of let us remember that we're the holy presence of God was very much characterized my uh, upbringing, my education, my approach as president of the school, and that final line, live Jesus in our hearts forever. So I would say I was blessed that during a time of, of the 70s of, of upheaval in the church, there was great stability in these two religious orders. And if you contrasted my life with, let's say, someone who grew up in another diocese, another part with crazy religious orders going through identity crises, you could have someone the same age have a terrible experience of, of Catholic education. So coming into Marin Catholic from my experience and in a school that had many problems, especially in Catholic identity, um, I have found that if a Catholic school is off its mission, it does more harm than good. And because people have this mistaken notion of what it means to be a community of faith. And we're seeing, I think today, this parallel church developing. What does it mean to be a devout Catholic? That shouldn't be defined by a segment of the hierarchy and um, elected officials. So um, I would say that solid foundation for my family first that was um, uh, ratified and uh, articulated in my education helped shape me and helped my vocation to be a priest and certainly as a bishop. Great. That idea of a parallel church is one I think would be worth exploring if we have time a bit uh, later, sure. uh, Bishop. Sure. Um, I referenced earlier your uh, election this past fall as committee chair uh, for Catholic education for the USCCB. I'd like for our listeners to get some insight, uh, Bishop, into the process um, by which uh, a committee chair gets elected. Do you submit your educational <laughs> philosophy to your fellow bishops? Uh, share a little bit about that process sure. for us. That, that's a very good question. I, <clears throat> I received a call uh, in the... Um, in the summer from Archbishop Brolio, who happens to uh, be in leadership in the, 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 the Bishop's Conference. And he, as I did uh, the previous, they both seemed to get calls coming to me in an airport. And 
uh, I received a call from Archbishop Vinderon when he had that position, would I consider running for evangelization, which I did and I lost, which I think was providential because Bishop Cousins won, has far more experience. But then I received a call from Archbishop Broglio and he said, you've been nominated, do you accept? So someone put my name forth and okay. I said, okay, well, that's, some, that's an area where I spent uh, 19 of the 24 years of my priesthood. And uh, it seemed, <clears throat> my, I was sent to graduate studies in education at Boston College. So it, it seemed to me something I was very knowledgeable about. I then, so I accepted it and um, I had been on the committee, Bishop Mike Barber from Oakland had asked me to serve on that committee. So I had experience on that committee, but as a member. So then it goes to, um, I guess they called individuals, bishops, and it was narrowed down to myself and the Archbishop of Atlanta. So of course, if you read, depending upon what the press is, um, there was some controversy. I, I, I'll be honest with you, it was as if I was the Ayatollah, you know, that somehow I was coming into this, to this position. Well, they, because we were virtual, both in the summer meeting and um, which, and then November, um, it was all done on paper balance. So it's usually done anonymously on a click, you know, electronic. So then they were reading it and I was sitting in a rectory actually in the East Coast watching, participating in it and uh, I won. And so um, uh, then, you know, congratulations came in and uh, not to be controversial, but that same, uh, reporter for another newspaper called my election the most egregious now i don't i mean i'm tom daly from spokane not many people know of me it's a small diocese but um in any case um uh, i was elected so it's a process where you're nominated you choose to accept it or not and then it they narrow it down and you go you're you're like so there's no campaigning i mean i i, I wasn't working the phones for new england or the upper peninsula or anything but, but that's how it happens yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and then Bishop, uh, you've come into uh, this role, uh, role as chair during a really tough time. Uh, uh, the National Catholic Education Association recently published that we have now a 6.4% a drop in the last academic year, the largest single decline in 50 years. Elementary schools seem to be the hardest hit. And uh, as we look forward, um, you're facing a lot of challenges. What do you hope that the Committee on Catholic Education might be able to do to help reverse this momentum? Sure. I, you know, in reading the studies that talked about urban areas, I think that were the ones hit hardest, where the students would come from poor economic families, the, uh, the families exactly who benefit Catholic education. And I'm hoping you know, in this time, as we see such um, chaos emerging in the public school system. I mean, Catholic schools are not founded because the public schools are bad. We're there to save souls with academic excellence. I often used to say at, at Marine Catholic, which would be a middle and upper middle class community, our goal is to get your sons and daughters into heaven, but we better get them into a good college before that. And I think the approach to Catholic education, we can't take our schools for granted. We can't take the fact that our young people um, are gonna learn about Christ and learn the truths of the faith. And um, so during this time, I think we have to be clear in our mission. We have to make sure that our whole church sees that the schools are not just the responsibility of parents. They are the whole parish community. And especially in those communities, uh, I'm thinking about maybe perhaps immigrant communities that are Catholic, that benefit greatly from the school, that, um, 
that we do all we can because it is a time when young people are getting all of this, they're bombarded, their families by, by views that are contrary to what we're talking about, the anthropology of Christianity and our church. So I'm hoping that I can play a part in navigating our Catholic schools through this difficult time where we see how important they are. We call the whole Catholic community and communities that have benefited from Catholic education to see how important they are at a time when we cannot count on the secular world to support what we're about. Bishop, uh, during your years in ordained ministry, I'm guessing there's no doubt in your mind that these nearly 12 months now have been among the most unique and likely most challenging from issues of racial tension to the global pandemic to a polarization of our nation politically. What has been your hardest challenge in your role as a shepherd, um, and in particular for the Catholic schools in, in your own diocese? I'm fortunate that the director of our Catholic schools, Katie Rickers, and I work very closely together. And um, in fact, before just this, this our show right now, I, I met with her. Um, we were, um, we, we had to navigate, I think, a state of Washington that, you know, essentially like so much of the country said that religion wasn't essential. But because our schools had the ability to, to adapt, and when this whole pandemic was unfolding, she was working on a plan. Now, we're not a large system. We're only 13 grade schools. And within that, there were four, now a, a fourth high school, one diocesan, one religious order, one lay board, and actually a Chesterton Academy that just was opening this fall. But uh, during that time, she had a plan. And I thought it was a bit maybe unnecessary. I thought we didn't, but that plan was well organized. The principals were on board and we moved quickly on it. We were able to open. Now there was some reluctance and a couple of principals, a couple of pastors, but by and large, we were able to do that. So the pandemic, the challenge of course, were the fundraisers um, that were all put on hold or virtual. And, um, but, it was important that um, we did have a drop in enrollment, but then we had other schools that could take people. So the challenge was those parents who wanted us to open completely, uh, and then those small number of parents and a couple of administrators and priests who thought, no, it wasn't safe. So it was able, what is the truth here? What was something we could do safely? And I think we're, we were able to do it, but it had to do with, with a plan that was in place and also a, a courage. To, to move forward on it. Because as you mentioned, um, the isolation, especially in the upper grades where they were the last to go in, we can't underestimate what that does. I mean, the church is a community. One of the, one of the great explanations, humanly we can understand the mystery of the Trinity, it is one God and three persons. So there's, a, there's always the notion of community and Catholic education is about that. Discipleship, you know, they were sent out two by two. So discipleship means this community. And when that community was taken to place, I don't think we still know the extent of the hardship that this caused. But um, we were clear, we weren't bound by unions. We were, we were bound by a mission that our children needed to be in school safely. And we were able to do it by and large. 
Uh, one of the things that I've heard, Bishop, from many different places is that not only have there been some negative ramifications of going through this time, especially with the pandemic, but there's also been some good things that we probably we're going to take forward from this point as we continue to educate. What are your, uh, what's your perspective on that out there in, in your diocese? I think we realize that um, a couple of things, how schools and parents and families need to work together. And now suddenly when parents were forced into this role of, of being, you know, uh, academic dean, uh, dean of students, uh, athletic director, that was a lot to ask for our families. And um, I think it really taught us how valuable uh, that time in a school is. I think it also really forced us to, to, to look at what is important in our life, especially the faith. And we're going to have to work very hard as the church, as shepherds, especially the priests, number one, to get people back to Mass, to see that there is a God there that loves them, but a God that needs to be worshiped. So I think what we took for granted, and if probably we didn't have the pandemic, it would have been like the, the tire with the slow leak. Suddenly, you know, we woke up one morning when we really needed it, it was flat versus the blowout, you know, type of thing. And, and I, I think we're, we're examining the value of schools, uh, the place of God in our lives, the fragile nature of uh, many times people's emotional state, and um, this, I think, has caused us to really be deliberate in what we are trying to do in guiding young people and their families to know Christ, not just know about Christ, but to know Christ. I don't think we have the one answer yet, but I think it's led to the discussion, what must we do? Because life is sacred. Uh, you know, the whole racial divide in our country, the upheaval in the summertime. If we see ourselves as beloved sons and daughters of God, created in his image and likeness, that is, to me, the greatest example, witness, and reason for working together. And our schools can do this because we have a common philosophy, a common terminology, and we have most especially a mission, which is the salvation of souls. Bishop Daly, could you share a little bit about your own vocational journey into religious life um, and when you may have heard God first knocking and, uh, and, and how you've navigated that journey? Sure. I was fortunate that uh, to, in a, I tell the story about, as I mentioned, when my older brother and my cousins and I we were all altar boys in that time and the summer would be, what are, you, what are your vacation plans? And we'd always go we want to tell the rectory, the, the, the scheduler, we're off the whole summer. We didn't want to have to get up in the morning and everything else. And my mom and my aunt would say, no, we go on vacation one week in June, one in August, you got to sign up. In those days, if you can imagine this, a weekday mass in the summer, with just altar boys serving, 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., expected two servers at each mass. And so one time I can remember going into eighth grade, priest who's still alive, he's retired, Mike Burns, Father Mike Burns said, look, they're painting the church, mass is moving to the convent chapel, the Daughters of Charity Convent, um, only one of you is needed. Now, keep in mind, we had always tried to get out of anything above and beyond. And for some reason, to this day, I don't know, I said, I'll, I'll serve. Well, I think that that small yes, going into eighth grade, became um, the bigger yes were eventually after college when i graduated mm -hmm. from college i entered the seminary so looking back 
where did my vocation was nurtured in my family <clears throat> and by the example of the priests well, in high school, the brothers and, and all that. But I think that small yes in that chapel uh, allowed me to do that. Um, and uh, I didn't reflect on that until I became vocation director in San Francisco Archdiocese. And I had that job for, I think, nine years. And uh, I sort of reflected on my story. So I entered the seminary after, I was going to be a lawyer. So I was pre-law in college, accepted the law school, but went on the seminary. First didn't like it, but eventually was ordained a deacon and spent a deacon year. And then I was sent across the Golden Gate Bridge in the Marin, had a great priest to, to be assigned with, been assigned to a high school. And um, that's kind of it. it it's, um, it wasn't anything dramatic. I didn't have a vision, um, I, uh, but it was the example of my family. And actually, uh, my mom never quite knew what priest did all day. She thought we played golf on Wednesdays, had mass on Sundays, but she thought she knew what the, the Christian they taught. But um, and my family wasn't, um, it wasn't like father was always on the pedestal. We had a great human understanding that, that they're not all the best people, but um, you keep your focus on Christ. And um, so that, that's kind of it. And then later on as a, as a priesthood, I really look to St. Vincent de Paul and his, because Vincent de Paul underwent a conversion as a priest and becomes not only, of course, the great mm -hmm. uh, patron saint of charity, but most especially reforming of seminaries and a call to priesthood to, to lead as shepherds. And uh, that's been a very strong part of my life. And then Lourdes, uh, we are in the midst of our novena here in our diocese. Our cathedrals, Our Lady of Lourdes, we're the only cathedral in the whole North America with Our Lady Lords as our cathedral. And I've been blessed um, for the last, well, last summer I wasn't able to go, but 2006 was my first summer and every year after that of a youth pilgrimage, which I think has really brought um, for me a sense of uh, the importance of Mary's intercession, especially for her church uh, and healing, um, and also uh, leading us always to her son, Jesus. and and. I was able to lead, have been leading youth uh, vocation pilgrimages, which has been very uh, beneficial for our church because it's led to, I think, um, several young men who discovered their vocation are now priests. That's wonderful. And uh, one of the things I was thinking about when you mentioned the fact that uh, the majority of your priesthood was really spent around Catholic education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the people that are a part of the follow to lead. Uh, family, so to speak. And when you were in Catholic education, in particular, as a teacher, as president, do you remember uh, your, what might be your biggest professional setback and how you made it through? <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up. There was a great priest, uh, Jim Tarantino, passed away, but he was the president of the high school, and he was asked to go into the high school to assist the lay principal in really kind of reclaiming the school. And it was extremely difficult. I, I, as I told one of the Dominican sisters who was experiencing a little bit of frustration, I said, I was there 19 years. And um, I said, I, I often reflected on Psalm, the Psalm 95, for of those 19 years, 14 were very difficult, paraphrasing. For 14 years, I endured that generation. And um, yeah. I think that there were challenges there. Uh, there were because you had a school that didn't think um, you know, the, the fidelity to the church was important. And it, uh, you know, um, 
we, 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 we joked one day, and, you know, to, to a, not to a good year, to a good month. And let us pray that it didn't come down to the fact that um, we, we would say to a good day because it took a lot of effort. And I'll be honest, the turning point was in the spring of my first year, the other priest's second year, when he said, we're going to have to pray some of these people out of here. And it began with a monthly rosary and holy hour. And our prayers were answered with a few personnel changes that first year. But it was extremely difficult because um, they might be good teachers, but there wasn't a good fit in a Catholic school. And that becomes so essential. We, we, we don't want people teaching in our schools who can't humbly witness to the gospel. And some of the best teachers weren't Catholic, but they had tremendous respect for the mission of the church. And I found that uh, to be very affirming. But also, we had some people, it just wasn't a good fit. And then in that time, it was providential, had to change principles, went through a couple of them. And a guy came back into administration who had been a teacher, tremendous man, Don Ritchie. And um, he just helped. He said, let's, what do we want to do? And we did, uh, there was a great team. And sadly, he died of cancer uh, after about three years. But the man who followed me, Tim Devoney, as a, as a layman, is very good on the mission and the principal there, Chris, so, and the sisters. So, but this, you know, it wasn't easy. I have to say it wasn't easy. In 19 years, that was the amount of time I was at. Most priests don't have 19 years, mm -hmm. but um, it was prayer, perseverance, and focus on the mission. Yeah, Catholic school teachers as witnesses, um, an absolute um, preeminent precept, uh, Bishop Daly, for, for sure. Um, what do you view as the greatest need our Catholic school teachers have today? I would say um, support for those who are faithfully doing what they're doing, formation for those who maybe want to do their best but aren't sure, and then kind of the recognition that um, if you can't respect the mission of the church, you're not, you shouldn't be there. I, I think that's what fundamentally it is. And I, I have to be very honest, there are some people uh, who I'm not sure why they're there. Um, but uh, the majority of, of, of teachers, <clears throat> I think, do uh, are trying their best. And I think there's a very strong need for lay witnesses. But I do believe there's still a, a tremendous need for priests and religious, those smaller numbers, to be there. And I think our young people are drawn to that. I, I remember when, when um, there was an interview with a student, I was already out of the school, but one of the, one of the young men said at Edinburgh and Catholic, what we like about the sisters, their whole life is God and us. I mean, I thought there was great wisdom and insight of a young person at a time when so many messages come from our culture and society that are contrary to what Christ would like us to have. You know, it's interesting that uh, during the pandemic, I'm sure that you've noticed, as did we at our high school, that... Um, the spotlight has been put on Catholic education because we seem to have rolled back into in-person learning quicker mm -hmm. and done a lot of other things to kind of bring resilience to the school that uh, a lot of families aren't finding in public education. And so we're getting a lot more interest from non-Catholics or for those that had seen public school as the normal route. 
if you had one thing that you wanted to say to someone who was considering Catholic education right now for their student, uh, what would you what would you say to them? Sure, I would say that it it is an investment that. Uh, if the Catholic school is doing what it should be doing, the academics, the spirituality, the extracurricular, that uh, it is an investment that you won't appreciate the depth of that investment, the, the benefit of it until years later. There's immediate, but it is well worth it because there is so much working against the dignity of the person today. And so when parents uh, think that, well, one of the sad things about the decline in mass attendance is if you don't think it's important to be at mass on a regular basis, you're not going to think it's important to um, make the sacrifice, financial sacrifice for your children's Catholic education. But when you do that, it reinforces the home or fills in what the home may not be able to give. And there is a hope. Now, hope is different from optimism. Optimism is wishful thinking, often out of touch with What's, what is, but hope is reality grounded in faith. And the reality is these are difficult times, but our faith tells us again, Jesus's words before he ascended to heaven, know that I'm with you to the end of the age. And that our people need hope and Catholic schools produce that hope. They live and, and evidence that hope. And that's what we need. So to parents, I'd say, you know, cut your vacation a week short, do without this because Make the sacrifice for your Catholic education because our young people are drawn to Christ. And it's one thing I learned. They may not always appreciate at the moment, especially high school students, what you're teaching them, but give them the truth and um, do it with charity, with love, with patience. And we're meant for that truth. And uh, I love that line. It's not often prayed the fourth Eucharistic prayer, all who seek you with a sincere heart and all those whose faith is known to you alone. Our goal is to help our young people seek with a sincere heart, and I believe they'll find Christ. And for parents, that's one of the greatest gifts you can give them. Bishop Daly, I'd like to revisit that idea of this parallel church idea <laughs> yeah. that you um, brought up earlier. And if you could just tease that out for us sure. and, and some reflection on it, and is it a good thing for our church or... Ought no. <laughs> we to mitigate and, and how, what's the remedy? We're feeling this tension in the schools as yeah. well and, and um, would really welcome your thoughts on that. Sure. I think this parallel church, what I'm seeing is um, all of a sudden there is this um, give, driven by certain religious orders or members of religious orders, even certain bishops, that fundamental aspects of our faith, especially the life issues, are somehow part of this generic pad, package deal. The life issues, the unborn, the aged, the infirm, the refugee, they're connected, but the foundation is the unborn. And um, if you begin to allow elected officials who proclaim this great devout faith and yet advocate and push forth legislation agenda that is, puts at great risk um, the unborn especially, we have a problem. The elected officials do not define what it is to be a devout Catholic. And um, we have to, we are the teachers as bishops. And I think Archbishop Gomez's uh, letter that was written by committee chairs also, that is the teaching authority of the church. And um, 
my question is, I was interviewed uh, in a paper and I was quoting from what Cardinal George, who I thought to me was tremendous as a teacher and a man of humble wisdom that um, we, we, are, we cannot be useful idiots of uh, elected officials under this guise of, of, of this, you know, well, this is what it means to be a Catholic today. Okay, well, you know, it's, it's like Herod at the time of Jesus. Herod was propped up by the Roman government, and he wasn't a true. And we have to be very careful for that. We, you know, to ingratiate ourselves to certain elected officials, I, I don't, that's a dangerous path because it's not rooted in truth. And I think we have to stick with the truth. In my experience, growing, I mean, again, as I said to someone, I didn't fall off a wheat truck. You know, I came from an experience of seeing life in San Francisco change dramatically, and uh, especially with the, the role of the church. And we, uh, we have to be committed. And I use often, I think this is something that guided me as a teacher, the experience of Jesus with the rich young man, as we found in Mark's gospel, becomes for us, I believe, the pathway of navigating challenging issues in our society. We're told that Jesus loved him. Now, that meant his salvation was, I mean, Jesus wanted him to know that. He asked for the path to eternal life. He loved him. That is, he wanted what was best. Jesus respected his freedom. He did not force him to follow him, to sell. He didn't make him sell what he had. But the third thing is, which happens too often, Jesus did not compromise. He didn't run after him and say, you know, forget what I said. Just sell half of what you had. That's what I'm seeing here, a compromise. and that is a dangerous path because it's, it's deceptive. And I, I think what we, we've seen in the church, I think is a certain arrogance, um, humility and education or intelligence lead to wisdom. Without that humility, which is truth, without that humility, we have arrogance. And um, it's almost that certain people are presuming to tell God what it really means. I find so much of this parallel church to be uh, a portion of that book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, um, where there's this, the, the two clerics, one's an Episcopal bishop, Anglican bishop, and there's a priest, and they're talking about how they took courageous stands, and the young said to him, no, we didn't. We did that what was popular, that would sell books. And I think it's very dangerous for us to curry favors with certain elected officials and with friends in, in church when it's not about Jesus Christ. So that parallel church is very dangerous. And um, uh, I think it, it will only lead to further confusion and it may risk people's salvation. Hmm. I think we're seeing that a lot of the students in the, uh, especially in the secondary schools and the high schools seem to be influenced a lot by that issue of the parallel church and they're kind of voicing things that are kind of speaking toward that other uh, that parallel church that exists. What kind of um, suggestions do you have for teachers to kind of keep everybody kind of moving toward the straight and narrow as far as church teaching? Yeah, you know, I think we're going to have to, um, I think we'll go back to, to, to Mark's gospel where, um, that interaction, Jesus and the rich young man. <clears throat> we, um, whether it's this whole issue of gender now, um, you know, transgender, um, same-sex marriage, um, I think we, 
we are going to, uh, it, it, we're teaching that which is quickly unpopular in our society, but we have an obligation, I believe, to our, to our, to our baptismal promises, our obligation to Christ and his truth to proclaim this, not in a vitriolic way, or, or, but, but to say, no, this is what it is. I had a meeting last week and I said, we have to remember, you're not forced to come to our schools. You choose to come to our schools. And why should we allow one family cause tremendous upheaval in a school because they're trying to say that this child um, is now identifying as a boy uh, or a girl and, and whatever it is. And, and I think we have to be very careful. The whole situation of the, 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 the school in, in the Midwest, the Jesuit school, as to what its identity was and the, and the, you know, the archbishops uh, uh, trying to say, no, this is what you must do to be a Catholic school. So I don't think we can, my line I'm often quoting, compassion always, but compromise never. And um, we have to be very careful about that, I think. But I'm afraid what we're seeing is we will have one diocese or one school that is very so-called accommodating and welcoming. And then there will be across the river, the mean bishop uh, who's trying to uphold church teaching and the teaching and what we believe and teach. And the press, the secular press, and even certain Catholic press will make that individual out to be, um, uh, you know, evil and, and uh, destructive. And, and let's stay with the truth. What is the truth? And uh, I think that's important. I think we have to keep going back to the truth. Mm -hmm. Bishop Daly, with that case um, of the Jesuit high school in Indianapolis, um, which I think now is sitting in the Vatican, um, uh, pending. I don't know if you have any insights on that case or in your role as chair on committee of Catholic education, do you have a forum by which you can get involved in, in that case or share your opinions I, on I, that? Yeah, I understand that they've appointed uh, Cardinal Tobin of Newark to, to be a part of that. When we had our ad limina, which was the first week of February of last year, region 12, which is the Northwest, we, when we had our meeting, we divided up who would present to the uh, dicasteries. I presented to the, to the dicastery in Catholic education. And in that, in that meeting, I led off by talking about the history of our Catholic schools in the United States, the challenges we faced. I then spoke about my own experience and the challenges. And I quoted from those three points of Jesus's interaction with the rich man and Mark's gospel. But I said, it doesn't help when we, um, have a situation of a school that is defying the bishop when the, I think the other school was run by a board, but was somewhat at one time part of the archdiocesan school system, followed church teaching, and this other one did not. And um, I think, you know, we can't have certain schools exempt uh, because they believe they uh, have friends in high places. So, um, I think, you know, what are we about? Uh, so um, I would argue that, and again, I don't have the authority as a, as a chairman, uh, um, that, um, that we have to be consistent. And um, if you don't want to be a Catholic school, then have the honesty to shut it down uh, or replant it. My fear is the way we have a second, we'll have people say, good, 
I don't care. I just want my kid to go to a school and get into a good college. And um, that I think we have to work at. What does it mean to be a Catholic school? I was at a, at a, attending a meeting one time and someone was talking about donors. And I couldn't believe one of the board members just, well, half our donors are pro-choice. Pro it's just as matter of fact. And I thought to myself, well, suppose you just said half our donors are racist. Wouldn't that rattle everybody? Well, no, but it's just this kind of this notion that well, we're talking about life here. And I do believe we, we, we have to be very clear on that. I think it's what, I, I, I was uh, 12 years chaplain, uh, weekend chaplain of St. Vincent's School for Boys and was founded for the orphans of the gold rush in the 1850s. Now they were wards of the court. But I remember a number of those, the director was a great guy, and he said, you know, Father, uh, most of these kids have been neglected, they've been abused, uh, physically, emotionally, sexually abused. The ones who have been abused, they were almost hollow. That's the best way I could describe it. They were just hollow. And I thought, you know, those words of Jesus, you know, put a millstone around your neck if you're gonna harm the little ones. And we have to do all we can for the dignity of the unborn, the mother, the father, and help families. And I think when we deviate from that, um, we're not doing God's work. And so um, I, I think when we teach, and Pope Francis has spoken a lot about this whole gender issue, the same-sex marriage thing, and um, we, um, we're being called to prophetically stand for that. I know it's not popular, but it's, it's what we're called to do, and it's... It's, and it's not just the clergy and the bishops, it has to be lay people. And I know it's a lot, it, it, it puts you probably at odds with certain circles of friends and, and um, but uh, it just shows, I think we're now seeing what happened when the breakdown of Judeo-Christian values of our nation. Um, I was listening to one talk when one of the, one of the professors was speaking about um, your country in many ways, the Protestant roots, but we had a common belief in the Judeo-Christian view of life. And with the collapse in so much of mainline Protestantism, you basically have left evangelical Christians and Catholics trying to hold up this Judeo-Christian view. And it's, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. there, there's that uh, phrase, the frog in the kettle, and uh, mm -hmm. kind of the sleepiness, I think, of a generation, um, especially uh, for Catholic leaders in, in school settings. What's a way to wake people up in terms of the issues that we're facing right now? Because it seems like there's a complacency there. I, I think that you're right. I think the pandemic was one thing that certainly woke us up. Um, I think I often tell a cultural Catholicism, there's two forms. There's the ethnic cultural Catholicism, which I saw a lot in California where people thought, well, they're always going to be in the church. Well, no, they're not going to always be in church. If you pray in this language and you live in this language, you have this kind of division and people spend a lot more time in the world than they do in the religious world. So the ethnic Catholicism, we, you can't take belief in Christ for granted. We have a whole thing I would say about Catholic education, cultural Catholicism. If we send them to the schools, they'll learn about Jesus. They'll be part of their faith. They'll always go to mass. No, they won't. I was meeting with a, um, a couple last month and, um, they were talking about, I guess, frustration, their kids leaving the faith. And they told me about the schools they had gone to. And I wonder, I said, well, what are they leaving? What were they given? 
And I don't think we can take for granted that just because someone goes to one of our schools and they identify with that school, it's going to help them be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And um, that I think we're seeing. We're, we're seeing, you know, do people just because, you know, my grandfather went to the school and I went to this school and, and my dad went to this school. Okay, well, that's all well and good. But did it, make, did it help you become a better Christian to see part of a faith community and faith informing your actions? Um, we're not just about social workers. That was always my fear. You know, you have these kids in middle and upper middle class Catholic schools. They go on these mission trips. They dig latrines for a week. They go surfing for two weeks. And then they talk about how great it made them feel when they're on vacation in Hawaii. And it looked good on an application for college. Okay, the why behind what we do, and that's what Catholic schools, uh, we need to, we have to be intentional. Why do we have these schools? I think the schools are as needed today as they were when we had to combat the know-nothings. Because the know-nothings now are basically in media and they are in key positions and it is a strong anti-Catholicism. And so we, you're right, the, the, the frog in the pot, hot water. I mean, we can't take the schools for granted. What does it mean to be a Catholic school? And it just doesn't mean, you know, it's an old school with a religious order tradition or a, a crucifix on, on the wall. How are we forming disciples? And Bishop Daly, we don't know what this pandemic is going to do to mass going attendance um, once everyone is vaccinated and this next normal uh, begins. And it's been my belief that our Catholic schools need to be ready to step into the breach even more. Um, they are a locus, not just for faculty and students, but our families and grandparents and alum. And so um, I'm curious of your thoughts on what the charge could be for our schools to help shoulder um, this journey and, and faith formation as part of a new evangelization um, for our church. I think that's a great point. Um, when parents <clears throat> choose to have their kids in Catholic schools, whether they're regular and mass attendance or not, um, they are making a commitment and you have before you in a Catholic school, a group of students who I believe in, in there is a grace that young people have to know about the Lord. I, 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 I see that. I saw that from my own experience. There's, there's just where young people are meant, they want to know the Lord. And um, because we already have them in front of us, we have to do all we can to make sure that they have experiences of prayer, uh, knowledge of the faith, uh, the sacraments, um, that faith is put into action and caring for others and all of that. So we have this group before us. What do we do with them? If we're not doing that intentionally, then we're just a private school and we don't need private schools. We'll, we will fail in that. Um, and I think that is a mustard seed. And, you know, I was telling them, a group of younger priests who were a bit discouraged. And I said, you know, it could be worse. It could be the, after the French Revolution, where um, I, I never will forget the first time I went to France, I visited this room. It's called the Room of the Swords. I think it was part of a Carmelite seminary. There are these swords up against the wall where they had rounded up the priests in this room. The priests could look down in the yard. And every few days, they'd take a couple of guys out and ask them to take the oath from the, bond, from the civil from the constitution. If they didn't, they cut their head off. They come back, put the swords against the wall, blood-stained plaster, until the next group got 
to come. And I thought, okay, well, that's probably about as bad as it gets. So, you know, there are never the best times for the church. Are there better times? Yes. Are these the better times? Probably not. But yet, that's what God has called us to. I think St. John Paul used to talk about, don't underestimate why in this moment of time, God's called you to this. So I think our Catholic schools are becoming a mustard seed where we have before us young people and by extension their families. And thus we cannot squander this opportunity. It is, it is, they are, you know, society are sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus looks out upon them, he wants us as their shepherds, as the bishop, as the priests, as the school leaders to see the same. We should not and cannot squander this privileged opportunity to help them become disciples. Bishop Bailey, we're just about out of time. And again, just thinking of the listenership, the Catholic leaders in schools, teachers, staff, uh, do you have any one thing you'd like to leave them with as just maybe kind of a final thought or marching orders or sure. kind of a rallying cry that you'd want us maybe share? I would say um, it begins always with prayer. There's, there's this great quote uh, that I of Vincent de Paul um, about grace is necessary to begin and even more so to persevere to the end. So we, we are a faith community and I am with you to the end of the age, Jesus' word before he ascends to heaven. Um, so I would say we, we begin with prayer and we end with prayer. We ask for our Blessed Mother's intercession. If we could take the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee, essentially fill in the blank what we're out of. You know, they've run out of faith. They've run out of leaders. Um, they've run out of hope. And we ask our Blessed Mother's intercession. We can't give up. Christ is with us. He's called us to this. And um, being a shepherd as priest, as bishop, we have a flock to tend. And we have to care for them. And it's going to require sacrifice. So I would say, don't give up. Pray and ask for our Blessed Mother's intercession. And she'll lead us always closer to her son, Jesus. Now, those are great words to leave us with. And I think if prayer can be the bedrock of everything we do, uh, we're going to be in a such stronger place as we continue to move on and uh, recognizing it's going to take some time. It's not an overnight miracle that we're looking for. All right. Well, Bishop, thank you again. And we do want to thank Bishop Thomas Daly of the Diocese of Spokane uh, for being with us today. Bishop, uh, what a joy to have you here and to hear your heart and to just really catch the fire that you have in you for, uh, for Catholic education. And uh, for our listeners or those watching on YouTube, if you haven't done already, please subscribe to our podcast and leave your comments that uh, we might continue to grow and develop uh, as we uh, continue this journey together. We also want to thank our production interns, John Sampson and Alex Shire along with our production supervisor, Mr. Jack Alsbach, for producing this podcast. And may God bless you. Thank you. God bless. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. 
To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.